here and it looks like Laura Luma may very well win the Republican nomination for a house seat out of Florida. I mean, can you imagine Laura Luma in in Congress? I mean, she is so frequently the object of ridicule, right? The amount of ridicule that that woman receives to compare to the amount of respect that she receives it has to be a ratio of something like 100 to 1. I mean, I can't think of any other woman on the distant right who receives as much ridicule as Laura Loomer, but she just keeps on trucking. She, she doesn't give up. I mean, was it three years ago she chained herself to the headquarters of Twitter? I mean, she's put everything on the line she's she's not married she doesn't have kids she's she sacrificed essentially all her ties to polite society and and how driven is this woman that she proceeds through all the ridicule she went on ethan ralph's show and made the claim that she would stand up for christian nationalism as, as an ashkenazi jew laura loom is ready to stand up for christian nationalism would she be along with what paul gosar Audrey Taylor Greene, would she be the most right-wing member of Congress if she wins? Now, this is a plus 10 Republican seat, but if she wins the Republican nomination, is she going to make it all the way to Congress? Incredible. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Turns out the symptoms of societal decay are universal. They're not unique to a specific society. You recognize them in any country at any time, now or a thousand years ago. Always the same. The men become weak. The leaders get decadent. Law enforcement gets politicized. The currency gets devalued. And then things begin to come apart. Pretty soon, doesn't take long, the society can no longer perform its most basic function. The reason we have societies in the first place, which is to protect the weak from the strong. That's why you have a society. Well, in places like this, it becomes, among many other things, very hard to travel anywhere. You just can't go where you want to go. With legitimate authority in retreat, roads are not controlled by the police. They're controlled by armed predators. And the armed predators take exactly what they want from travelers because they can't. This is an ancient problem. It used to be called highway robbery. And for most of history, it kept people very close to home. Turns out it still exists, but now it's called carjacking. Carjacking is the clearest possible sign that your civilization is falling apart. And that's why you find it in places like Somalia and South Africa, places where force, violence, and clan loyalty have replaced law and order, places where might makes right. In the city of Johannesburg, for example, a vehicle is hijacked on average once every hour of the day. Now, once that happens, there's really no coming back from it. Nobody's going to build anything in a city with endemic carjacking. In fact, most normal people will leave as fast as they can, as they have in Johannesburg, as they are starting to do, we are sad to tell you, in the city of New Orleans, where carjacking is now a permanent feature of life. 
Last summer, a law student called Madison Bergeron pulled into the driveway of her home in New Orleans. As she gathered her belongings in the car, a young man appeared out of nowhere, stuck a gun in her face, and demanded that she hand over everything she had, including the car. He screamed at her. Terrified, she complied. And that's what carjacking is always like. It is an act of violence. People don't want to give up their cars. They have to be terrified into doing so. That's why the majority of victims are women, old women, young women. And that's why the people who do it will do anything. If you will carjack, if you will steal someone's car at gunpoint, you will also rape. You will also murder. You have no limits. You are willing to violate on the most basic level the civil rights of another person. And in this case, that was certainly true because that same perpetrator went on after terrifying Madison Bergeron and stealing her, her car to do the same to other women in the city, a lot of them. There was a car blocking me in, one victim recalled. And next thing I turn and there's yelling and there's a gun barrel in my face. The kid is yelling to get the F out of the car, get the F out of the car or else he will shoot me. In all, the carjacker would terrorize five women and steal five cars in just two days before New Orleans police finally arrested him. And it's amazing that they did because there are virtually no police left in New Orleans. In a city that probably needs about 2,000 cops, there are under 500 active duty policemen left in New Orleans. In New Orleans, they have definitely defunded the police. But in this case, the carjacker, a young teenager, was ultimately caught tried, convicted, and sentenced for his crimes. Now, these crimes got a lot of attention in New Orleans. So the mayor of the city, Lotoya Cantrell, showed up to the sentencing. But here's the twist in the story. Mayor Cantrell didn't show up to support the victims, the women who'd been terrorized by this predator. No. The mayor showed up to support the carjacker and to let the entire city know that she was doing it, to let everyone know whose side she was on. Watch. The mayor showed up in court as a character witness for a 14-year-old offender during sentencing. The teen robbed three women in separate incidents with a fake gun, stealing their cars and belongings. The victims told Fox 8 they were traumatized by what happened, and then they felt victimized all over again when the mayor showed up in support of the young criminal. I was in shock. She wasn't there for us. She was there for the assaultant and his mother, and she fe it felt like she was supporting the crime. Juvenile judge Renard Darensburg sentenced the juvenile to a three-year suspended sentence, meaning no jail time. It felt like she was supporting the crime, said the victim. Well, yes, it did, because that's exactly what the mayor was doing. Cantrell was taking the side of the carjacker over the tra traumatized law-abiding woman. Now, in New Orleans, Cantrell is known by her nickname, Teedy, but many people call her exactly what she is, Latoya the Destroyer. She is, in fact, a destroyer. The mayor is incompetent. The mayor is an open race hater. The mayor is an encourager of violence, and she is destroying an already wounded city. We reached out to Mayor Cantrell's office to ask why she's doing all of this. Why did she pressure a judge to release a convicted armed carjacker with no prison time? But, of course, she didn't reply to us. It turns out the mayor of New Orleans had a connection to this carjacker. Cantrell had enrolled this person in one of her administration's welfare programs called Pathways Youth Internship Program. Using taxpayer money, the program says it provides young people who commit crimes with a reward, paid internships and a stipend. 
We contacted the Pathways program this morning. We want to know how many people enrolled in that program go on to commit violent crime within five years. We also asked how much taxpayer money they spend. But, of course, they didn't answer. But we don't need an answer. We know exactly what this is. Pathways, like most social justice scams, is not, in fact, designed to reduce crime. It's about siding with the criminal, giving the criminals as much support as they need, even a courtroom visit from the mayor if necessary, so they can go out and commit more crimes as soon as possible. So why would you do something like this if you were the mayor of a city of New Orleans? Why would you force people to leave your city, the people who pay all the taxes, of all colors, by the way? Why would you do that? Well, possibly because the people who are left tend to be the ones who vote for you. So it is a kind of electoral strategy. It's not just happening in New Orleans. It's happening in a lot of places. The downside is it leads to carnage. There have already been 191 carjackings in the city of New Orleans this year alone. Through all of last year, there were a total of 177. Now, most of these carjackings, and this is true in a lot of other places, Washington, D.C., we think, most of these are committed by people under the age of 18. Why? Because they know they'll get off. There's no cost. The local station WWLTV found that in 2021, juvenile carjacking suspects outnumbered adults by more than two to one. Now, that doesn't mean that these are nerf versions of carjackings. They're very violent. In fact, they're always violent and sometimes they're fatal. In March, several juveniles aged 15 to 17 mutilated the body of a grandmother, an elderly woman, as they carjacked her in mid-city New Orleans. They dragged her body down the street. Here's Fox 8 New Orleans reporting on it. 17-year-old John Honoré, 16-year-old Bernaya Baker, and 15-year-old Markel Curtis and Linraya Theophile will be tried as adults on second-degree murder charges. Police say that the teens carjacked Linda Fricky in Mid-City back in March. Fricky was beat and then dragged outside of her car until her arm was eventually severed from her body. She then bled to death in the middle of the street. So again, society exists not to protect 17-year-olds with guns. On the most basic level, those are the strongest people in society, people willing to use force to get what they want. No, society exists to protect people who need the protection, the helpless, the weak, grandmothers who might be dragged and have their arms ripped off without police protection. And of course, in the absence of police protection and in the absence of leadership, that cares about the weak, those are exactly the person who are people who are murdered. And it's not just happening in New Orleans. What's interesting, if you pull back a little bit, and we have because we think that carjacking is a really clear indication of things unraveling, you find that cities with Soros-backed DAs and well-funded diversion programs for at-risk youth are seeing surges in carjackings. Could there be a connection? Philadelphia, for example, Consider that city. This is reporting from a local station there, Fox 29. Jackings in Philly, a crime that's been exploding over the last several months. And according to Philly police numbers released to Steve Keeley by a source, it's getting worse. From January 1st of this year through July 31st, a police source says there have been 757 carjackings citywide. There were roughly 850 carjackings in all of 2021. The latest sourced police statistics show that the majority of these carjackings, more than 500, happened at gunpoint and also happened while the victims were at their parked cars. 
So why is this happening? Well, it's happening for very deep reasons. Any 15 or 17 year old who sticks a gun in the face of strangers, threatens their lives or kills them in order to steal a car is the product of something that is very hard to fix, disintegrating families. That's the real reason. But society, the authorities still have an obligation to try and stop it for the sake of the rest of us. So what are these cities doing to stop it? Well, Philadelphia, like New Orleans, sends so-called at-risk youth to violin lessons through something called the Philadelphia Arts and Education Partnership. So the idea is, after a month of violin lessons, these young criminals, people who've been busted committing crimes, get their records expunged. That was the plan that Philadelphia's DA put into place last year. Has it worked? Well, sad to tell you that despite the violin lessons, crime has gone up among young people, carjackings in particular. As Philadelphia's police commissioner, Daniel Outlaw, put it, quote, I don't want to say it's surprising, <laughs> but it's definitely concerning. Really? Well, it's not surprising to us, but it is for sure an understatement. From 2020 to 2021, there's been a 108% increase in carjackings in Philadelphia. Chicago, too, putting up similar numbers. Chicago has had more than 1,000 carjackings this year alone. What does that do to a city? 1,000 carjackings? For every carjacking, there is a much larger group of people now afraid to drive. Hmm. Now, Chicago is the place where Soros-backed DA Kim Fox recently implemented something called the Juvenile Intervention and Support Center. Right. For this initiative, Fox partnered with a more quoting black-owned, black-run businesses called Chi by Design, which pledges to, quote, be bold in our collaborative approach to create anti-racist outcomes. Really? So it's been completely politicized. The point of law enforcement traditionally has been to enforce the law, laws that are passed by legislatures as a product of the democratic process in order to protect everybody else. Now, the point of law enforcement is to affect anti-racist outcomes. In other words, political outcomes. How's that working in Chicago? Well, here's Fox 32 Chicago to tell you. There's a carjack car. Yep. Chicago's got it. We got eyes on it. Okay. One of the passengers in the stolen SUV eventually fled. When police caught him, they discovered he was 17 years old, released to his mother. Sadly, he's not the youngest suspect that members of the carjacking task force have seen. Uh, a well-known 11-year-old. That have been in contact with police before? Yes. Yes. An 11-year-old was arrested in Chicago as part of a carjacking crew, and it was not his first time. 11 years old. One of that carjacker's victims said that, quote, he actually skipped like a child all the way up to the car he stole. We can't tell you his name because he's an at-risk youth. Apparently needs more violin lessons, and he will soon be a productive member of society. This is a joke. The people administering the program know it's a joke. It doesn't achieve the main overriding goal, which is to protect people who just want to go to the grocery store, protect grandmothers who want to go to church, protect everybody else who wants to go to work in the morning, who wants to live in a city where you can travel on the roads without being killed. Chicago's leaders don't care. The same is true, by the way, of the unnamed 16-year-old girl who hijacked a man's Audi while his child was in the car. That's an atrocity. Here's Fox's 32 in Chicago. 
car now, 60 East 23rd, child's in the car. The frantic father reports his car stolen. Somebody jumped into his black Audi Q7 with the dealer plate, his child is in the car. So, as you so often see in these cases, the person who commits the crime has committed a ton of other crime, because it turns out most crimes are committed by a very small number of people. And in this case, the girl who stole that car stole several other cars that month. Which makes you wonder, maybe violin lessons and visits in the courtroom from the mayor don't really work. Maybe these people need a father at home. The nuclear family? <laughs> right. Those things are not, in fact, racist. They are essential to any functioning civilization. And in lieu of them, it is clear that things fall apart. And the only thing you can do is to put people out of the public sphere, away, so that other people aren't hurt by them. That's the best we can do. And it's obligatory that we do it because people are being killed. And if you don't do that, you wind up with a society in which 11-year-olds treat carjacking like a sport because they know they can get out of jail very quickly. Here's Fox 2 in Detroit. Detroit police arrested an 11, 12, and 14-year-old for stealing high-end Hellcats off the Jefferson North lots. They think it's fun. You know, they think it's fun, and there's no penalty to it. Head of the Detroit Police Commercial Auto Theft Unit, Lieutenant Clive Stewart, stunned over the trio of kids arrested Monday right here on the storage lot of the Jefferson North plant. In a separate incident, this kid, just 14 years old, an alleged repeat carjacker arrested this weekend. He was out on bond from a carjacking in May. Then last week, police say he jacked two cars on the city's east side. Your hair and your eyes look so... So if you look closely enough at this specific problem, carjacking, and that's one of many problems in our society that are, seem to be getting worse, but just look at this one, and you begin to realize, because everything is irony at this point, the youth violence prevention initiatives that are supposed to stop this actually enable it, indeed appear to be encouraging it, and yet they're still getting millions of dollars from the Biden administration. The youth diversion programs that make these kinds of crimes more common have a lot in common with the equity programs for unhoused people that seem to encourage homelessness. And those two have led to more carjackings. Here's a report from Fox 11 in LA. Carjacking caught on camera. Witnesses keeping their distance as a homeless man punches a street vendor, then steals his van. The street vendor was carjacked by a homeless man over the weekend. Esteban says he'd even seen his attacker before and that he had never had a problem with him, adding that he gave the man food shortly before he punched him in the face. Yeah. So if they're happening in New Orleans and Los Angeles and Chicago, of course, this is happening in our biggest city, New York which is also run by yet another Soros DA. But as evidence of the collapse of social order is in Philadelphia, Detroit, LA, and Las Vegas, nowhere in the country is experiencing a bigger increase in carjackings than the birthplace of our new civil rights movement, Minneapolis, where this all started. According to the National Insurance Crime Bureau, Minneapolis saw the largest percent increase in carjackings in the country from 2019 to 2021, a 339% jump. 
what the hell is going on and why is no one saying anything about it and why are these cities doing nothing to stop it? Joining us now is a man who has spent his life in law enforcement. James Craig is the former police chief of Detroit. He joins us tonight. Chief, thanks so much for coming on. So if you see a 339% increase in carjacking in one city, if he's the mayor... Okay, thanks. Thanks, Tucker. So it looks like Laura Luma is not going to win. She's going to fall about five percentage points short. Your hair and your eyes look so good. You're, like, beautiful. Thank you. You're like an Aryan degenerate goddess. Thank you. I love it. Thank you, thank you. You're Aryan, too. I know, but I'm Jewish. It's okay. The Nazis hate me. Let's remember and happy times. All my people want to put me in a gas chamber because they're obsessed with the Jews. I don't. I think they're just memeing on you, but it's okay. They're just jealous because I have big tits and an Ashkenazi IQ. Yes, that's what it is. Yeah. You got it. I'm gonna tell you a secret. Like, do you know so many people in this movement who preach sad life are like fucking people on the side and like cheating on their partners? That's like, so bad. Like, they're not even like really sad such, life. Such like, scum. Your hair and your eyes look so good. You're like beautiful. Thank you. You're like an Aryan degenerate goddess. Thank you. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. You're Aryan too. I know, but I'm Jewish. How about you? Your hair and your eyes look so... Okay, thanks. Thanks, Laura. So, <clears throat> family of Hispanics, men, women, and children just uh, walking in Las Vegas, and you'd never guess what uh, what happens next. So I, I just uh, don't understand why there's so much tension between these groups. I mean, why, why can't you know blacks and Latinos, you know, get along? Why does there have to be so much hatred? I'm reading in the Los Angeles Times this week. In California's largest race bias cases, Latino workers are accused of abusing black colleagues. Why? Why? Why would they do that? It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, why can't two of the largest race discrimination cases why can't they just love each the other government in the past decade allege widespread abuse of hundreds of black employees at warehouses in Southern California's Inland Empire region. The N word, the imagery, the nooses. Writing on the walls, calling the silverback gorillas. I heard the workers call me Negrofea, the N word in Spanish, and Aunt Jemima. Offer no reason whatsoever. For no reason whatsoever, you get this ugly behavior. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, essential news from the LA Times. It's Monday, August 22nd, 2022. Just for no reason Anti-black whatsoever. Anti-black bias on the job is sadly nothing new, but as Latinos... 
Why would anyone have anti-black bias? I mean, they are the most peaceable, you know, pleasant, you know, harmonious, hardworking, educated, you know, family-oriented people around. Latino population across the U.S. and especially California continues to grow. Anti-black bias by Latinos in the workplace. It's drawing renewed. Why are the Latinos? Why? I mean, it just doesn't make sense for no reason whatsoever. Why this bias? Scrutiny. This is just so bewildering. For no reason whatsoever. I mean, they have no reason to have any negative feelings about black people. Margot Roosevelt covers California's economic, labor, and workplace issues for the Los Angeles Times. Thank God. Margot, welcome back. Thank you, Gustavo. Thank in you. this day and age, people cite white supremacy as the primary motivator in discrimination. Yeah. But what's going on between black and brown warehouse workers in the Why? England Empire? For no reason. About half of the imported goods from Asia that Americans buy all across the United States Must be come white supremacy. through the ports of L.A. and Long Beach. And oh. much of them are trucked to warehouses in the Inland Empire. For no reason. So, in Riverside and San Bernardino counties, you have a huge number of low-wage, blue-collar jobs. So the EEOC, that's the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, no is the federal government's whatsoever. main civil rights agency. And it filed suit against the companies that ran two huge warehouses after God. hundreds of complaints from black Awful. workers that they were harassed with the n-words and other slurs look let's get down to the to brass tacks the problem here is that blacks don't speak up enough right they just keep quiet that they're not out there speaking out like when, when someone mistreats them they just have this this confucian stoicism I think it's so important that we start encouraging black people to start speaking up if they ever experience, you know, the slightest hint of discrimination. Be quiet no longer. Like, get active. Like, get activated. Like, go to the barricades. Like, riot. I mean, you got to speak up for yourself, right? If you will not speak up for you, who will? It's time for blacks to get politically active and to demonstrate by fellow workers and discriminated against by their bosses. Terrible. These two warehouses were run by giant companies, Rider Awful. Integrated Logistics and Cardinal Health. And a lot of their workers were hired and jointly supervised by an Orange County temp firm, Kimco Staffing Services, and a Glendale temp firm, Apple. One. When I read through the court documents, I was surprised to see Spanish language slurs listed. So I went out to the Inland Empire to interview some of the black workers who had filed complaints, and they all said. And the, what's so incomprehensible is that the these Spanish-speaking people were making slurs about black people for no reason whatsoever. It's not like they had any negative life experience, right? They had a life experience of only good times with black people. That's it. They, they hadn't been the recipient of crime. They hadn't been beaten down. They hadn't been robbed. They hadn't been raped. There weren't people close to them who'd been shot uh, by black people. They had this lifelong history of only cordial relations with black people. And then suddenly, for no reason whatsoever, they start 
using these anti-black slurs in the Spanish language, which is just so incomprehensible because I thought anti-black sentiments were just purely the province of, of white racism. said the same thing, which was that the abuse and discrimination came from Latino workers and supervisors. Wow. The harassment was wow. really ugly. As soon as I started working for the warehouse, I felt... And the harassment was really ugly. I mean, the carjacking, the raping, the looting, the, the, you know, the murder. I mean, that's not so ugly. It's the, it's the mean words. That's what's really ugly, right? Astronomical rates of murder, right? Astronomical rapes, rates of rape. Astronomical rates of breaking and entering. Astronomical rates of, of assault, right? That's not ugly, but mean words uncouth behavior, just a, a general lack of friendliness. Just, uh, that's really ugly, guys. Unwelcome. Like I wasn't wanted there. So Regina McCorkle was the first black So this uh, Latino family, this Latino group of uh, adults, kids, men, women, and children, just having the heck beaten out of them by another group here in Las Vegas. All right, uh... I wonder if any other Latino group has experienced this, right? Maybe there are like rational reasons for, for tension between these these groups. I mean, I, I maybe I'm wrong. Worker to file a complaint with EEOC. It's about time, all right? It's about time that black people stand up and file a complaint if they perceive the slightest you know, negative glance or, I mean, don't let it get to the point where you've got spoken words out loud. If you just feel uncomfortable, it's time to file a complaint. Over her treatment at the Ryder Logistics Warehouse. Usually people are nice to new employees, but workers ignored me. They stood in groups. I mean, this is awful. I mean, what, what these black workers experience is far worse than than all those who've been raped and robbed and beaten down and murdered. I mean, just having mean words said about you. I mean, how could you? How could you go on? The streets, so I'm going nowhere. That's why he got Cleveland. smacked, cut. He tried to bend the corner, nigga. Wasn't going nowhere. Nigga was spinning right there in the middle of the street, so. Oh, oh, shit, cut. Goddamn, oh, shit, soda, cut. Hey, come, we got the goddamn, come, we got the goddamn minutes, minutes of car here, so. What the fuck going on, cut it? Only in Cleveland, shout. Cut that bitch running. Oh, shit, he's sliding that bitch, shout it, cut. That bitch running off of three AAA batteries, shout. That bitch running off of uh, uh, vegetable oil, power steering fluid. I'm going nowhere. That's why he got smacked, cut. So I, I just, it just doesn't make sense why the, there's tension between these groups. You're pointing at me and laughing. And talking loudly about me and other employees in Spanish. The oh workplace was so segregated. She told me that she this was a temp awful. worker and like many of the workers there. And at the end of each shift, their names would be on a list to work the next day. Black workers were picked last or not at all. So they were sent home. I needed the work, but I couldn't get the hours when black employees kept being the last ones chosen. But I hung on. I worked really hard to move up. I thought the work environment was bad before. Now, 
did does this this uh person ever ask was there anything that uh my, my fellow blacks might have done that have possibly precipitated this negative reaction from latinos now i obviously i think that this uh behavior alleged is, is heinous and horrible and you know cruel and, and nasty but uh why all right why is there tension between blacks and latinos could there possibly be substantial conflicts of interest could it be that uh, high rates of crime and murder and rape and robbery and pillage by one group you know, precipitate a generally negative reaction uh, by by another group that's tucker so when the FBI raided the home of Donald Trump, it was pretty obvious to us that this was the Biden administration ordering it. Oh, no, separation of agencies, they said. We didn't coordinate this with DOJ. Well, of course they did. Donald Trump is likely running for president again. They want to stop him. It's what they do in the third world. If you have a political opponent, you just imprison him. No, they're not trying to stop Donald Trump, I don't think. I, I think they, they want to see him as the Republican nominee because he'd be the easiest Republican to beat in 2024. So now proof is accumulating that that's exactly what happened. The website Just the News just published a letter from Deborah Wall, who runs the National Archives, to Donald Trump attorney Evan Cochran, Corcoran rather. Wall wrote in April this, quote, I've decided not to honor the former president's protective claim of privilege. The counsel to the president has informed me that in light of the particular circumstances presented here, President Biden defers to my determination in consultation with the assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel regarding whether or not I should uphold the former president's purported protective assertion of executive privilege. That's how they write in Washington. Oh, it's excruciating. Then she continued. Accordingly, the archives will provide the FBI access to the records in question as requested by the incumbent president beginning as early as Thursday, May 12th, 2022. So what this is, is confirmation that the White House Counsel's Office, quote, affirming a request from the Department of Justice supported by an FBI letterhead memorandum, demanded the National Archives, quote, provide the FBI access to the 15 boxes for its review within seven days. That was in April. In other words, Joe Biden's administration signed off on all of this months ago, and Merrick Garland just executed it. Obviously. So if you think that's troubling, how about this? A clearer demonstration of priorities we have never seen. The Biden administration announced today that they're going to send another three billion dollars to okay how about that letter released by the trump team it, it's a letter that makes trump look really bad like why would the trump team release a document that cast him in such a bad light and i think the answer is that trump doesn't have a strategy he's incoherent he's stumbling around and it just doesn't seem that he's gonna pull his act together so this letter was published by John Solomon, a Trump ally. And so the letter focuses on a request by the Department of Justice to turn over the documents and the question of executive privilege as it applies to former presidents. And this is analysis from the excellent uh, center, centrist to center-left website outside the beltway.com. So the letter carefully documents every major action that's been taken by the National Archives since the initial Department of Justice request provides the accompanying statutory and legal basis for why the action is being taken. 
So this letter that uh, Tucker was just crapping on is an incredible example of government transparency done well. Right? The letter explains that the underlying protections for the documents of former presidents don't apply in this case. So the National Archives recognizes how important and unprecedented this situation is. It ensures that every I is transparently dotted, every T is crossed and clearly documented, as opposed to the slapdash nature of Trump team's response. Right, so this is this raid is not some thrown together rogue local effort to get a former president. So this letter details how President Trump was kept in the loop during the whole process. The letter's timeline demonstrates how much leeway was given to President Trump to make his case. The letter demonstrates how Trump's lawyers have been doing everything in their power to drag the process out. This letter disarms two Trump defender talking points. One, if these documents are so important, why did it take so long to recover them? And two, the former president has not been respected through this process. And then the National Archives letter demonstrates why the claim of executive privilege does not hold up under legal scrutiny. The letter moves into relevant case history, starting with the most relevant case on the topic of the limits of a former president's executive privilege. And then it concludes with a bit of snark. The question in this case is not a close one. The executive branch here is seeking access to records belonging to and in the custody of the federal government itself, not only to investigate whether those records were handled in an unlawful manner, but also, as the National Security Division explained, to conduct an assessment of the potential damage resulting from the apparent manner in which these materials were stored and transported and take any necessary remedial steps. She highlights how this decision helps preserves the powers of the Office of the Presidency to execute its duties. So the letter lays out two reasons for the Department of Justice's request for transfer to conduct an assessment of the potential damage resulting from the manner that these materials were stored in and for the purposes of the Department of Justice's ongoing criminal investigation. So there are over 100 documents with classification markings comprising more than 700 pages. Some include the highest levels of classification, including special access program materials. Frustration of the National Archives with former President Trump is palpable throughout the document. This is signaled from the beginning with, as you are no doubt aware, notwithstanding the urgency conveyed by the Department of Justice, notwithstanding the reasonable extension afforded to the former president, your April 29 letter asks for additional time. The question at the heart of the Trump claim is not a close one. So this is as close as you'll get to a government official calling out BS. The letter finishes with a note. The former president's designated representatives can review the records subject to obtaining the appropriate levels of security clearance. So why would the Trump team release a document that casts them in such bad light? And we have one law professor, Oren Kerr, says uh, lawyers are giggling at Trump's motion and how poorly it was done. Note that it is receiving respectful coverage from the press. Reporters are writing up Trump's allegations and requests because they appear in a legal filing. What Trump alleged and what he wants is his news. So even a legally weak filing can be a public relations win for Trump. A bad motion is still a win for him as it leads to a win in the press coverage. So this is part of a kind of flood of the zone defense. Time will tell if all this coverage is useful to Trump. We'll also be telling to see if and how Trump's supporters will try to spin this in his favor. Then former White House attorney Ryan Goodman writes, Note what is missing from these exchanges. Any claim by Trump's side that he declassified the materials. 
And then top story in the New York Times, Trump without the presidency's protection struggles for a strategy. I think that's accurate. So facing serious legal peril in the documents investigation, the former president has turned to his old playbook of painting himself as persecuted amid legal and political stumbles. Well, he brings his persecution on himself. So on Tuesday, today, a Florida judge informed two lawyers representing former President Donald Trump, neither of them licensed in the state of Florida, right, that they had bungled routine paperwork to take part in a suit following the FBI search this month of Mr. Trump's Mar-a-Lago home and private club. I mean, Trump's response is shambling, shambolic, a mess, disorganized, incoherent, amateurish. The judge tells these two lawyers a sample motion can be found on the court's website. So Trump is projecting his usual bravado. He's raising millions of dollars from outraged supporters. But there is something different this time. The errant court filing offers a glimpse into the confusion and the uncertainty that the investigation has exposed inside Trump's camp. And if you have this level of amateurism, confusion, uncertainty, incoherence, amateur hour productions, this isn't just a tiny facet of how Donald Trump conducts himself. This is all throughout how Trump conducts himself. So Trump as president was amateurish, confused, incoherent, and frequently not very effective. All right? If you've got a problem in one area of your life, you've likely got that problem all through your life. If you're sloppy, incoherent, amateurish, shoddy, inconsiderate, dishonest in one area of your life, I guarantee you, you have those same problems all throughout your life. So this is the greatest legal threat Trump has faced in years, and he's going into the battle shorn of effective lawyers. He just keeps burning through lawyers. He's struggling to hire new ones, and his new lawyers are amateurish. He's facing a justice department he no longer controls, run by a by-the-book attorney general, who's pursuing various investigations into Trump methodically and quietly. Trump is serving as his own communications director and strategic advisor. He's seeking tactical, political, and in-the-moment public relations victories, often at the risk of stumbling into substantial legal missteps. So you're probably wondering, what do... What did Joseph Cotto and Halsey English have to say about all this stuff? Uh, it's not all of the Republican base, but it certainly it's part of it, particularly the religious wing. It's the religious wing. It's the MAGA wing. It's this us versus them. Like, I get it. We all were pro-Trump in 2016. We were all very happy we, he got elected. Every single one of us watched what they did to him and what they would like to do to us. All of us saw all, all of the above. Trump is, what, 79 years old right now? And his only care right now is to not look like he's a loser. And in doing so, he's willing to burn down the whole house just because he's not willing to go away quietly. And he won't have to live with the repercussions of any of this. He's going to die soon, okay? He's really old, just like Biden. Biden doesn't have to live with any of these repercussions. And obviously, neither do his kids. You know, I mean, look, has Hunter Biden seen the, the uh, anything? So it's, it's almost like I wish we could make an appeal, like a real appeal to Trump to like, just please put on your big boy pants and realize that with this incredible influence that you have, you can actually shape but the country certainly. for the better by just getting behind good people that are running, facing good issues that actually know what they're talking about and stop making this all about you not being able to accept that Biden won the election by cheating. He did it. It's over. He's president. You're not. 2024 is a pipe dream. And even if by some miracle they allowed you to win again, which I don't believe will, it is going to be the worst four years of your life and decent chance you drop dead in office. So enough of this. Like, please, for the good of the country, do something that isn't just in your own interest. Please. Best I, I can think, do. 
I think that they will be just as bad to any Republican. Uh, I think Trump has actually, uh, his candidacy, set the template for what we're going to No, see. they won't be just as bad to any Republican. Trump has created an extraordinary backlash, all right? Trump lost, the Republicans lost the 2018, the 2020 elections because they had a swing of 2% against them in the suburbs, right? Suburban voters don't like, you know, increasingly Trump's you know, deranged incoherent, disordered approach to things. All right, what's going on at our border, right? We've got massive numbers of illegal immigrants. The border is porous. So we don't know how many foreign nationals have come into our country during the Biden presidency so far. The best guess is in the millions, changing America forever, better or worse, but different. And a lot of them have just turned themselves into border, border patrol officers at the border, but some are still trying to sneak in, and you kind of have to wonder why. So recently, in the story we brought you last week, border authorities encountered three migrants wearing silhouette-blurring camouflage, ghillie suits. So we called around to find out, what is this? And you could see military fatigues and boots underneath the suits. Why were they doing this in a remote part of the desert? So government got back to us and said they were part of a group of six Mexican nationals, including an unaccompanied minor, groups ages from 17 to 41 years old. We believe that? I don't know. Jonathan Faye is the former acting director of ICE and joins us tonight to assess. Mr. Faye, thanks so much for coming on. So it, it's hard to know exactly. There's so much lying, but I, I'm still confused just on common sense grounds. I'm not an expert. You are. But why would they be wearing ghillie suits in the middle of the desert when they could just go turn themselves into Border Patrol? Yeah, that whole explanation makes no sense whatsoever. The only reason, the only thing that really makes sense is these people were coming here to do some harm, uh, either terrorism or crime, or have done something so horrendous in their past that they didn't want it to be discovered. Because, you know, or the only other option remaining is they are three of the four people in the world that believe we don't have an open border, and the fourth being the DHS secretary. It's an absolute right. disgrace. Our national security policy with respect to the southern border seems to be basically hope our enemies are kind to us or they're incompetent or lazy. And that's really not a way to have national security. And everyone knows something really bad is going to happen. We can see it right now. And they're still unwilling to change from this open border agenda because the open border agenda trumps public safety. It trumps national security. It trumps education, health care and everything else. And they have well, not backed down from this the entire time. Look, I know why those people came over in ghillie suits. They came over as an act of love. Come on. To see going forward where the media, the nonprofit sector, big business, even parts of big religion, uh, quite a bit of big religion, actually, uh, all turn up along with academia uh, to uh, vilify the GOP candidate as much as possible. And I think that would happen to Trump, will happen to any Republican candidate. That's why it's necessary to have voter. You know, and I'm just, I'm at the point now where I, I, I really, I don't know how this ends. I, I don't, I don't have, I have a very positive outlook that in the end, everything will be fine. It's what it's going to take to get to that end and how much suffering is going to entail getting to that end and what that end is going to look like in, in all of it, you know? And it's 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 almost terrifying because there's there's no safety net, guys. Like, all of the things that we take for granted as kind of just a given, they're hiring 87,000 IRS agents to accompany the 78,000 they already have. You really believe that's because they're going to try to figure out if Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are paying the right amount of taxes? They're not. They're, they're coming after us. Like, that's what they're here for. And, and remember... 
we're not like every other country. Every other country, the tax code is so easy mm-hmm. that, that you don't even have to think about it. They just take the money out of your paycheck, and at the end of the year, that's it. And if there's some kind of rebate that you get, you just apply for it and you get it. There's no auditing. There's no, there's no like, the, the Internal Revenue Service or the police. Because the only thing it could be is if you are basically making black money and, and not declaring it. Like, we could do that here. Do you know how easy it would be here to do that? But we can't. Because we've now made paying taxes, like, most people don't, in fact, the people who bitch the most about the rich paying their fair share, most of them don't pay any taxes at all. None. No. They're actually, they're, they're, they're net beneficiaries of tax money. And they're the ones who are bitching that everybody, and that's middle class too. I think at the time, remember when Mitt Romney said that, that like you said, 49% or 51% of the country doesn't pay any taxes at all. That was in 2012. It's worse now. Okay. So why do we need 170,000 IRS agents to make sure that the government is getting its cut? Why? That makes no sense. It would make infinitely more sense that if they actually gave a shit, they would just make the tax code easier. They, they would just say, okay, this is the way that it is. The poor pay this much. The middle class pay this much. The rich pay this much. No deductions, no loopholes, no nothing. End of discussion. This is what you pay, right? They could do that tomorrow and they could pass it one, two, three and abolish the IRS. There'd be no need to have it anymore, mm-hmm. right? They, and they would get all their money because it's, it's impossible to, if, if you can't like cheat the system, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. It's just, it's, people pay what they pay. If you want to start giving- Okay, I was just reading the book by Molly Hemingway on the 2020 elections. And if you think they were rigged, this is the best effort trying to make that case. I, I don't believe the elections were rigged. I don't believe that voter fraud was a major issue. But the best case that can be made has been made in this 2021 book by Molly Hemingway, rigged how the media, big tech, and Democrats seized our elections. Now, this could have been a great book. But the author mixes in a lot of bad points with the good. The overall effect is that of a woman kind of throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. The book would have benefited from running it by a skeptic such as a voter fraud expert or other political experts who are not partisan Republicans. The book does not live up to its title, but a less dramatic though more accurate title such as The Obstacles Trump Faced in His 2020 Re-Election Bid. Right, that more toned down title may not have sold as many copies. This book uh, reminds me of Tucker Carlson's show. There's lots of great stuff in here and a lot of bad stuff and dumb stuff and overall pervaded by constant pandering to the base. So Molly writes for Trumpists. As a result, everyone who's not a Trumpist is going to find abundant reasons to dismiss her efforts in this book. So rigged, her book would have benefited from showing the author's familiarity with the academic literature regarding voter fraud. She should have listed the primary arguments of the best thinkers making the case that voter fraud was not significant in the 2020 election and then provided evidence that they were wrong. I mean, think about how Charles Darwin wrote on the origin of species. He kept listing types of evidence that would invalidate his theses. So Molly Hemingway would have benefited from a similar approach. But I guess in the final analysis, she's another pundit feeding a particular audience what they want to hear. She could have been better than this. One day, someone from her side will be better. Molly tweeted August 11, shutter the FBI immediately. They are a threat to the country and self-governance. Right? Sounds a tad hyperbolic. But of the right-wing pundits, I would put Molly Hemingway in the top five. It's an election for the history books. Nearly one year ago, Joe Biden was declared the winner and president-elect in the 2020 White House race. And in her new book, our next guest explores the turbulence of the last election, warning the stakes for democracy have never been higher. Fox News contributor Molly Hemingway is author of this very comprehensive book. Uh, It's called Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. She joins us right now. I know you talked to President Trump three times, but it's really not about Trump saying it was rigged, even though he used that term. This is about your research and what you found 
happened in 2020. What did you discover mainly? Yeah, I wanted to know exactly what happened during the campaign. So for me, that means I interview everybody who's involved at the state and the national level. And I did find out that this election was unlike any election we'd ever had. People already knew that the media environment was corrupt, just like you just talked about. They suppressed that Hunter Biden story, which was explosive. They elevated fake news. They knew that big tech had manipulated. Uh, they, they did not want to have any information out that helped their political opponents or hurt their political allies. And so they sensed information and they, uh, and they deplatformed people. And they also changed a lot of our election laws. Sometimes they did that legally and constitutionally. Sometimes they didn't. And Mark Zuckerberg, one of the world's wealthiest individuals, funded the private takeover of government election offices. And that, was, that enabled a bunch of left-wing activists to come in to government election offices and actually uh, handle many things in the election, from voter registration to voting to vote counting. And he put a lot of money in. He put money on both sides. And he said, look, I'm, I'm funding both to make sure this is a, a pandemic, a 2020 effective election. But he was putting an unequal amount. So that was that was disingenuous. Well, yeah, they claimed that it was bipartisan, but they'd give a little bit of money to a Republican-leaning county mm -hmm. and then like $10 million to Democrat counties. And it really did make a difference. It's taken a while to figure it out, but researchers have shown that this elevated Joe Biden's vote totals in key swing states. It was a very savvy plan, but now it's being made illegal because a lot of people understand we can't have tech oligarchs funding our government election offices. It'd be like the New England Patriots hiring and staffing the referees for games that they play against other people. Right, and the crazy thing is Mark Zuckerberg, the individual, can only put maybe $2,200 in, but as a company, you can put hundreds of millions in. It's crazy. Here's an excerpt from your book, and you write this. Much of Silicon Valley's anger over Trump's victory was about their inability to control American opinion. In the past two elections, the tech industry has loudly and publicly taken credit for helping Obama's two victorious campaigns. But Silicon Valley's Orwellian reaction to 2016 proved once and for all that the visionaries at America's tech companies were oppressors, not liberators. Expand on that. Well, in 2016, President Trump had a lot of success in using social media to bypass corrupt partisan media that, that would not let his message out. And so he used social media to talk directly to the people. These tech oligarchs knew that had happened, and they actually overtly promised that they wouldn't let it happen again. So they knew that they had to suppress information constrain the free flow of information to help their political allies and hurt their political enemies. And so they, again, they censored, they deplatformed, and most dramatically, they took a, one of the most legitimate stories of the 2020 campaign, which was the mm. Biden family business and what exactly people get when they give Biden family members so much money. And they just didn't cover it. But then when some people were covering it, like the New York Post, they actually took those people off. Okay, let's have a look at uh, Paul Pelosi here attempting a So you uh, can try both feet out if test. you want. Before we, I'll let you start. Uh, you can try the test with both feet. So I'll give you like a like a, a pre-trial run, for lack of better term. You can try it with both feet. See which one you feel more comfortable with, and then once once you're ready, just let me know. Are you sure you could complete the test? Okay. Because I really don't want you to fall over and hurt yourself. That's the last thing I'm. Right, but but that that defeats the the whole purpose of the test, grabbing onto a pro car.
That was absolutely wasted. You should, you should pretty shaky on your on your on your legs, and I don't want you to fall over. So. Well, I fell over. Right. Nancy doesn't deserve well, this. Well, just based, based on what I'm seeing, I don't feel comfortable having you perform the test because I don't want to. I don't want you to have the potential to fall over and hurt yourself. That's 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 not what I'm trying to accomplish. Okay, let's. Uh... Let's turn things over to Heather McDonald here talking to Tucker Carlson. American at risk for real. The only person following this that we're aware of in any great detail is Heather McDonald, author of The Diversity Delusion. She joins us tonight with an overview. Heather McDonald, thanks so much for coming on. So out with merit, in with equity, what does this mean for medicine? It's putting patients' lives at risk. When you show up at the ER in an ambulance, Tucker, after, after a near-fatal heart attack, do you want your doctor to be able to reel off the various forms of white privilege, or do you want him to be able to get your heart going again? Well, according to the AMA or the American Association of Medical Colleges, it's equally important for your doctor to know all about white privilege. Uh, they are mandata- mandating courses in anti-racism, in, in white supremacy, in medical schools. We are eviscerating every meritocratic standard in the practice of medicine because it has a disparate impact on blacks and Hispanics. Uh, where we admit black and Hispanic medical students with grades that would be and, and, and scores that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by white and Asian students. And the result of this is going to be declining quality of care, a slowdown in scientific pros, pro, progress, and possible jeopardy to patients' lives. Nobody cares what color the doctor is. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. They just want the best possible doctor. Why are other physicians putting up with the politicizing of medical schools? Because they're all cowards. They're fearful of losing their jobs. The few people who have stood up uh, have been have been sanctioned, marginalized. They've lost positions. It's an utter mystery, though, overall, Tucker. I do not understand why they are allowing a medical profession, a profession that is dedicated to the highest standards of science, to saving lives, to be torn down in this phantom pursuit of phony racism. It does not exist in the medical profession. Yeah, I think doctors have a moral obligation to fight against this. They really do for the sake of the country and their patients' lives. Heather McDonald, I appreciate your bravery. Thank you. I thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tucker. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Let's get a little bit more here from Molly Hemingway. She's uh, talking with Clay Travis and uh, Buck Buck Sexton here on, on their show. Let's uh, cue this up, guys. Try to run a, a professional show here. Let's have a look. People are, but they both can trust elections. It's actually the entire republic rests on that. It's for shenanigans, shall we say. And they have put a lot of money and effort into that, and now they want to federalize that. They think that what they did in 2020 to destabilize the elections worked out well for them, and they'd like to nationalize that and make Nancy Pelosi the election czar of the, of the entire country. So it's really important in this country that both winners and losers, and of course that changes over time who those people are, that they both can trust elections. It's actually the entire republic rests on that. So we need to we need to always make sure that our elections are secure and that people can trust them. Molly, 
the whole story here is a mess because it feels like Biden somehow thought his Tuesday speech was going to change the overall calculus associated with voting rights. Instead, he gets kneecapped by his own senators, Cinema and Manchin, saying, hey, yeah, we're not going to change things associated with the filibuster. But in a larger context, this whole story seems very strategically failed by to me by the by the Democrats, because if you look at recent Supreme Court jurisprudence as it pertains to states having the right to set laws as it pertains to their elections, there's no way, in my opinion, that these Democrat bills would be constitutional in any way at all either. So this has always felt to me like somebody sort of by. Australia doesn't have this this chaos with their elections. There's a really good pace case to be made for making elections federalized, meaning professionals, federal professionals running them rather than having county by county uh, different rules and different procedures and uh, just entirely relying on volunteers. Maybe we should professionalize our elections. Taking full speed into a brick wall and pretending the brick wall isn't there. What am I, I missing about this? Yeah, I think what you're missing is that the whole idea is a long con, a long game. They might not succeed right now, but what they're trying to do is move the window to get people to think differently about election security and to make this a winning issue you know, in the next several years. And this is another thing I think Democrats are pretty good at. They say something that's very extreme that has no chance of winning and might even cause some electoral problems in the short run, say limitations on gun rights. But they get over time, more and more people adopting their perspective, and that gives them the weight they need to push to push for what they really want. I mean, everything they did in 2020, they claimed was for COVID relief. It actually had been stuff they've been working on for decades, decreasing the ability to determine whether a ballot actually comes from someone it claims to come from. Uh, it was something they've been working on for a long time. It wasn't just something they came up with during COVID. Um, expanding voting day into voting season, which incidentally is something the country used to have and moved away from precisely because we did see too much fraud when you expanded voting day beyond a single day into, you know, uh, you'd have different states voting on different days for presidential elections, and it did increase the chance of fraud. And so these things... Okay, notice how she conflates one one minute. She says, it increased fraud. And then she qualifies that a minute later. Increases the chances of fraud. Okay, so, yeah, there there are chances of fraud, but... Let's let's document the case of actual voter fraud. All right, D- don't just try to make your case based on there's a chance, right? There's there's a chance of rain in, in Los Angeles. I mean, I, I don't I don't see that yet, but there's a chance, guys. There's there's absolutely a chance, right? There's no hope, but there's a chance. Come on, document your case, make your case, and don't conflate fraud with. A chance As we told you, Charlie Crist, the former Republican, is now running for governor of Florida as a Democrat. Charlie Crist has switched teams so many times over his life. Who knows what he'll be by the end of the campaign? We can't wait to find out. It's going to be hilarious. Anyway, that's it for us tonight. Wish we had more time. We'll be back tomorrow night at 8 p.m. The show that's the sworn enemy of lying, pomposity, smugness, and groupthink. Have the best night with the ones you love. Sean Hannity, ladies and gentlemen. All right, Ed Tucker, thank you, and welcome to Hannity this election night, primary night. Tonight, a rare in-person campaign event for the very spoiled trust fund brat in a hoodie, John Fetterman, who called me a liar again today, and um, every day he calls me a liar. We will tell you the you truth think about Evan's who low, but the Democrats he really are very good, is, I think, about thinking trust- long-term and not just about the win that they can get right now, because I don't think they're going to get it right now, but they're thinking next year and beyond. We're speaking to Molly Hemingway, author of Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. And to that end, Molly, uh, talk to us about 
the role because, you know, big tech, we're often having these discussions about one, the way that this and uh, Elliot makes a, a sharp remark. Luke is very hard on his allies. And I think it's I, I don't want to get into the habit of lying. All right. I don't want to get into the habit of manipulating and pulling punches. All right. Everything you do has an effect on you. So if I were, you know, God forbid, working for a politician, then I, I'd become a paid liar. If I were a political activist, I'd have to become a paid liar. So I'd rather just say what I think within the limits of you know, my, my wider life, what I can, what I can get away with. And I, I'm just happier in that position rather than being a partisan. Censorship and the essentially the collusion with not just the Democrat Party generally, but with the White House specifically to suppress conservative and just alternative points of view is out in the open. They're demanding more of it. They're not pretending not to do it, which was the case even, let's say, five or six years ago. How did big tech change in your mind the course of the 2020 election and and what can we do about it? It's funny because we talk about election laws, which are very important, and there were massive problems with it, but it pales in comparison to how much big tech controlled the outcome of the election. You might remember that when Democrats spent four years claiming that the 2016 election was stolen, that they didn't really have a case. And like their big case was that it was stolen because Russians had bought a couple like $100,000 in Facebook ads some of them for Hillary Clinton, some of them for uh, Donald Trump. That was enough to have the country be hysterical. Well, compare that with what happened in 2020. For four years, I think big tech really worried that they had helped Trump win by allowing him to go around the media and speak directly to people. So they started changing algorithms. They started deplatforming the most effective conservative voices. They increased um, the reach of leftist voices. They engaged in so much election rigging. It's unbelievable. I mean, just by way of just like to take one small example, when Donald Trump would say that mail-in ballots were susceptible to fraud, something that everybody agreed with prior to 2020, including like the country of France, the Jimmy Carter Election Commission, the New York Times, Washington Post, he would be censored for saying that. OK, it wasn't that everyone agreed with it, but there were certainly some challenges to it. So by being hyperbolic, she weakens her own credibility. When Joe Biden said that there was like a conspiracy with the post office to control the outcome of the election, none of those tweets were censored. None of that rhetoric from anyone on the left was censored. And it was, a, you know, a crazy conspiracy theory that affects elections. And most dramatically, also, you think about how they conspired with Democrats and other people in the media to suppress the single most important story of the 2020 election, which was information about the corruption of the Biden family business. There is. I mean. Why is this story so important? She keeps talking about this was the most important story of the 2020 election. But has she ever made the case why it's so important? I I mean, I I take it for granted that politicians are are corrupt. I don't see the great importance of the Hunter Biden or the Biden family corruption story. I mean, it may be incredibly important. It's just I notice when I start trying to pay attention to the story, I find I just get bored. No question that American voters had a right to know about the Biden family business, how it worked, who all was involved in foreign entities. And the big tech companies, you know, brutally suppressed that story. And, you know, again, go back to that Russia story, you know, $100,000 in Facebook ads. It's it's sort of horrible threat. Was uh, season six of Better Call Saul overrated? Is that is that the total number of, of seasons? Was it six? No. Now. Better Call Saul was not a crowd pleaser show, but it was it was thoughtful. It was, you know, a high IQ show. I mean, I found it uh, satisfying. It was, it, it was it was about the best TV out there. I I can't think of any other show that I have more looked forward to watching. 
over the past few years compared to Better Call Saul. Now, the most prestigious show right now is Industry on HBO. It's it's about a, a bunch of uh, primarily 20-somethings, very smart at a Goldman Sachs-type bank uh, based in London at a trading desk. And they're very smart. They're doing a lot of drugs. They're having a lot of sex. And uh, it's compelling. It's a, a it's a smart show and also enough of the element of a soap opera to you know keep you dramatically engaged. So I think it's it's called industry. It's the it's I think it's probably the, the most uh, prestigious show around right now. So a lot of people I know are hooked on uh, nicotine gum. It uh, seems to act as a cognitive enhancer, maybe even more effective than modafinil. Uh, no, thank you. I've never smoked, never will. Really? I don't get it. You know, smoking's not as fun as trying to quit smoking. That's fun? The There's nicotine replacement therapy, yeah, it's good. There's a variety of tools. You've got your vapes, you've I've, got your I've fucking... Used every one of them. There's not one nicotine replacement therapy I haven't used, from the patch to the vape to the lozenges to the gum. And what's the gum? It's like seven bucks a pack? I buy mine in New Zealand on eBay <laughs> because it's not childproof. So you can get to it. Right. It's and delicious. It's how much? A lot of writers you know, absolutely swear by nicotine gum. Which is it? It's about maybe 300 bucks a week. That is insane. Yeah, so it's like a parking space. But unlike a parking a space. A parking space in the most expensive parking city on earth. Yeah, but I mean, as compared to a parking space, you get a deep sense of satisfaction, any nagging feelings of self-doubt or self-loathing or ameliorated. I mean, it just really, it forms the basis of your joy. Oh, wow. So it doesn't just cure smoking. It cures all ails. Well, it, it cures unhappiness, basically. And the question really is, are you ready to be happy? I mean, this is the question most people never have to face. They assume, yeah, I want to be happy, but they don't really. They choose unhappiness again and again and again. I, by contrast, have chosen happiness. And that's in nicotine gum. That's exactly right. There's no downside that I know of. Well, the financial part is... Yeah, but it's worth it. Why do you work? Well, I do drink... Uh, when I'm drinking, it's... You know, the bill's always 40 bucks for a few Maker's Marks. No matter what. No matter what. Yeah. You end up buying the other guys or something. It's See, I quit drinking and just went right to, right to nicotine. All right, sold. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we're sitting here with Tucker Carlson. Is this actually going? It's live. Oh, God. <laughs> fantastic. That's why I said I was talking to the whole world. <laughs> I had no idea. It's absolutely live. Was any of that a secret? No, it doesn't bother me. Well, you said, who are you talking to? I said, I'm talking to the world. <laughs> I thought you were kidding. I thought I you were talking to the producer. I would have said if I was just talking to a camera. <laughs> okay, let's go to the chat. So, Luke, uh, this means Ukraine is losing? Question mark. U.S. alerts all Americans still in Ukraine to leave immediately ahead of expanded Russian strikes. No, I don't think that means that Ukraine is losing. It means that uh, there is expectation that... There will be more more Russian strikes, and I was looking at the Washington Post that a big series on the road to war. And listen to how they phrase things: Ukrainians had already twice risen up to demand a democratic future, free from corruption and Moscow's interference during the 2004-5 Orange Revolution and the 2013 Maidan protests that preceded Russia's annexation of Crimea. I mean. Look Look at how the Washington Post here is treating Ukraine. Right. It doesn't mention that in the 2013-2014 Maidan protests, 
they overthrew a democratically elected pro-Russian uh, president of Ukraine, right? I mean, the way the the media shows for Ukraine, it's embarrassing how you know blatant it is. Come on, guys. I mean, can't you do better? Surely you can do better. All right, I'm concerned about racist tropes in this uh, following New York Times article. Did you know there are a lot of traffic accidents happening and they just so happen to be disproportionately affecting black people, but no fault of their own, right? It's just that these traffic accidents, these collisions, just reaching out and grabbing black people, they're disproportionately harming lower income families and black Americans for no reason, right? There's nothing that they are doing that that is causing this. Like vehicle crashes seem as if they might be an equal opportunity public health problem. Well, which public health problems are equal opportunity? Like uh, monkeypox, but uh, huge racial gaps, right, in U.S. passenger vehicle deaths. But it has nothing to do with what any of these groups are doing. All right, it's just. These, these car crashes are just reaching out and, and it just could happen to anyone. Come on. I, I'm concerned that, that by focusing on the racial angle here, that this will give birth to racial tropes to, to people who think that maybe the, the, the drivers of many of these vehicles that are involved in fatal accidents, maybe they have some role to play. The unequal toll from crashes is particularly notable now. The U.S. is experiencing an alarming increase in vehicle deaths, which just so happens to coincide with the summer of George. Okay, summer of George Floyd, 2020. We discourage policing. As a result, we have this massive explosion in crime and recklessness. And shocking, we have this massive explosion in car fatalities and serious injuries that seems to disproportionately affect the same people who participate in disproportionate amounts of crime. The reason for the increase remains somewhat mysterious, experts say. No, there's nothing mysterious about it. You discourage the police from doing their jobs, and people behave worse. So we used to have a steady trend downward in both murder rates and in car crashes, all right? That was going down, down, down until 2014. All right, the situation changed around 2015. Now, it changed with the Ferguson effect in 2014 when police were once again discouraged from doing their job. And then Trump took over and you started to see a return to crime rates and traffic deaths going down. But then in the spring of 2020, vehicle crashes surged. No. They didn't surge in the spring of 2020 until after the George Floyd incident. Did COVID lead to more crashes? I mean, come on. This is absolutely ludicrous. Right? Car crashes, crime, the surge in crime, the surge in murders coincide with the summer of George and discouraging of police from doing their job. So you get a lot more bad behavior and groups who disproportionately participate in bad behavior, right? They suffer more. Okay, College Board publishes AP exam. And shockingly, Asians get the best scores followed by whites, then Hispanics, and then blacks at the bottom. 
But if you go to the college board and you look to see their sources on race, well, the college board has scrubbed all the old racial data. College board no longer discloses AP test results by race because it wants to spare the feelings of certain persons of color. Right? The truth is just too awful. So the college board wants to spare people's feelings. Real estate websites, Redfin and Realtor.com will no longer display crime data due to racial bias concerns. Right? When you want to buy a house, do you want to know if the neighborhood is safe? Well, you must be a racist. According to these two websites, people reporting crimes were more likely to describe their offender as young, male, and black than would be expected given the representation of those groups in the population. So that's the chief growth officer at Redfin. So University of Illinois at Chicago put out safety warnings about a maniac on campus, but it will not tell you the maniac's race. Why? The decision is a proactive, progressive measure balancing public safety with the potential negative perpetuation of stereotypes. Our goal is to make everyone feel welcome and safe on campus, so we're not going to racially identify people who are threats. So 1999, Minneapolis Star Tribune. Uh, it does a detailed study of every one of the gun crimes of the city in 1997. They only suppress one thing, the race of the criminal. They worry that if they include that information, that information might be misinterpreted. We wanted to focus on firearms, right? Who's using the firearms to murder people? Well, we don't want to get too specific about that. Now, not true about certain aspects of crime. The New York Times keeps telling us that law enforcement officials say the biggest Terror threats come from white supremacists. But is that really true? Like what happens when we say, look at the, the FBI's most wanted, right? Here's the FBI's most wanted uh, domestic terrorists. Wow, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of uh, white supremacy there. Hmm. Okay. How about their top 10 most wanted fugitives? I'm not seeing a whole lot of uh, white supremacy there. Gosh. This is, this is confusing. Okay, let's have a look. Toronto homicide most wanted. Let's have a look at their m mugshots in Toronto. Wow, not seeing a whole lot of uh, white supremacy on there. Shocking. Okay, what's going on in Milwaukee? Milwaukee gives racial statistics. It says that 90% of suspects in homicides and non-fatal shootings were black. 10% were white. The racial mix in Milwaukee is 68% white, 11% Hispanic, 16% black. So according to the Milwaukee police, a black person in Milwaukee is 126 times more likely than a white person to be a murderer of a shooting suspect. Wow.
I I'm concerned that this might perpetuate perpetuate racist tropes. Democracy, but then you look at what they did in 2020, and it's just it's it just is so much more massive. Molly, as you were about to come on, um, and we appreciate you coming on, I, right before the show started, I was looking at my Twitter trending tab section, and I'm not sure if you had a chance to look at this thread yet, but I shared a couple of days ago, we played on this show, the Pfizer CEO saying the first couple of shots of his vaccine had limited, if any, protection against the new Omicron variant of COVID. And he said that in an interview. It was with Yahoo News. So I've uh, reached out to Kevin Michael Grace a dozen times over the past couple of years. I'd love to have him back on the show for one show, two shows. He's uh, not streaming on YouTube. He's trying to get get it together to move on to another platform. He's had a lot of uh, YouTube strikes. Now, if you appeal a YouTube strike, I mean, your odds are less than 5% of winning. So... Uh, I certainly, you know, wish Kevin the best. He, he's invited on here if he wants to come on for a couple of shows while he's uh, getting his act together. But uh, Kevin doesn't respond to my invites. So that's what's going on there. It was distributed. Twitter took it down and said it was a copyright violation. I then put it back up. Some other user had grabbed it. They, they didn't take that down. But then they brought in, we're going to talk about this a little bit here on the show in a moment. They brought in a fact checker, Reuters, and Reuters said that the, the Pfizer CEO is be taken out of, being taken out of context. If you look at what they're doing right now, it is an unbelievable height of disinformation. Reuters uh, chairman, by the way, sits on the board at Pfizer. They are the official fact checker for Twitter. This is effectively a paid advertisement for Twitter masquerading as a factual fact check. This kind of thing happens all the time. How do we fix it? I'm not entirely sure how to fix it, but it is a massive issue. It's it feels Soviet what they're doing. Yes, they are limiting what people can say about. Okay, so the right wing's doing a pretty good job building an alternative media. It just uh, needs to do more. All right, let's have a look more at this new Molly Hemingway book, "Rigged: How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections." This is the the best book I've read yet, making this right wing case for a rigged election. Now, I don't believe the 2020 election was rigged, but certainly there were obstacles, considerable obstacles placed in the way of the Republicans winning the presidential campaign. Here's a book review in the fall 2021 edition of the Claremont Review of Books. A loose interpretation of Molly Hemingway's title, Rigged, would simply imply that the playing field was tilted against President Trump. Now, they can literally mean things were arranged so Trump could not possibly win under any circumstances. That claim is not defensible. Hemingway declines to make that argument, and Trump, who did make it, did not come close to proving it. So Rigged could have benefited from a less forgiving approach to Trump. A substantial section early in the book covers the Trump campaign's successful effort to change the Republican Party's rules for selecting delegates, choosing state party leadership, and scheduling primaries so as to gain the upper hand against any potential intra-party challenge. Hemingway clearly admires this strategic acumen, but she never asked, doesn't this mean that Trump rigged the primaries? And why is that any better than Democrats rigging the general election? So Hemingway uses substantial material from personal interviews with the former president. This material provides some interesting insights, occasionally reveals a little bit of self-reflection by Trump, such as when he acknowledges that he was overly belligerent in the first presidential debate. However, on some occasions, Trump's pronouncements call out for a challenge that never comes. So at one point, Trump declares, I was winning by so much prior to the Chinese virus that George Washington, with a running mate of Abraham Lincoln, couldn't have beaten me. 
right? This claim is amusing, but it's not close to being true. Yet uh, Hemingway uses it, Molly Hemingway uses it to buttress her, her case, which is ludicrous. So perhaps the biggest shortcoming of Molly Hemingway's book, Rigged, is its failure to come to grips with Donald Trump's contribution to his own defeat. You have to read to the 333rd page before the author admits, that's not to say that Trump didn't say or do unwise things. Right? This tardy and perfunctory concession doesn't do justice to the problem. In reality, Donald Trump made a very large number of unforced errors throughout his presidency, and he was so offensive to so many Americans that his average job approval rating as measured by real clear politics, never exceeded 47%. He was underwater every single day of his presidency after January 27, 2017. That is after exactly one week as president. His election day average was 41%. At no point during his presidency did the percentage of Americans who thought the country was on the right track approach the percentage who thought it was on the wrong track. Right? One election day poll respondents said the country was on the wrong track by a two to one margin over the right track. So Trump played a huge role in his own defeat. Now, a lot of good stuff in this book. And uh, she starts it out. If questioning the results of a presidential election were a crime, as many have asserted in the wake of the controversial 2020 election in its aftermath, then much of the Democratic Party, the media establishment, should have been indicted for their behavior following the 2016 election. In fact, the last time Democrats fully accepted the legitimacy of a presidential election they lost was in 1988. In year 2000, Democrats said that George W. Bush was selected, not elected. When George Bush won re-election against John Kerry in 2004, many on the left claimed that the voting machines in Ohio had been rigged to deliver fraudulent votes to Bush. HBO produced and aired the Emmy-nominated Hacking Democracy, a documentary claimed to show that votes can be stolen without a trace adding fuel to the conspiracy theory fire that the results of the 2004 election were illegitimate. But nothing holds a candle to what happened in 2016 after Donald Trump's surprising defeat of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. So things that we all see and that we all witness. They're saying there's one approved interpretation of events. I mean, it is true that people sometimes misinterpret things or take things out of context. The cure for that is people saying that. You can say it in response. No, actually, this is what they meant to say, or here's what here's how that should be read. And people debate, and that's what happens in a free society. In an authoritarian regime like the one we have now, with big tech colluding with, you know, at the request of Joe Biden, he just yesterday said, yes. I ask you, my allies in big tech, please suppress information if I say it's disinformation. I mean, that's not a direct quote, but that's what he was saying. He decides what disinformation and misinformation is, and then, and then you get suppressed based on what his views are. With everybody in big tech being, almost everybody in big tech being closely aligned with the Democrat Party, this is a this is an attack on some of our you know, most foundational values as a country that we have the right to pursue truth and that we can that we can do that by obtaining information and debating the meaning of that information. It is so un-American and there's so much money in this, as you know, people are paying to do this suppression of information. And it's not just American companies. It's you know, China is heavily involved in all of this. It works for them to control the people and control the flow of information. But it's sort of not working because the one thing you know is that if something is fact checked, that's a good chance that actually it's true. <laughs> Molly's the author of Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. I'm actually about to buy my copy in real time as I'm talking to you right now online. Molly, before we let you go, though, when people, as I'm sure they do all the time, come up to you and say that there was fraud in the 2020 election, what do you say to them? Well, 
I think that people need to expand their understanding of what happened in 2020 to be much, much, much bigger than fraud. And what I talk about in the book is how there were changes to hundreds of elections. So I've uh, successfully appealed YouTube strikes probably on three occasions. So I have about a 25% batting average with appealing YouTube strikes. So what I do is I get very specific. I will usually note my sources and I, I try to address the concern that, that I suspect that YouTube has and then note my sources, note what I say. And uh, yeah, I've had uh, yeah 25% success in reversing YouTube strikes. Laws ...to make it difficult to even detect fraud, to make it so that you couldn't have confidence in the results, that you wouldn't know if a ballot was legit. That Mark Zuckerberg, another way that Big Tech meddled, spent $419 million to take over government election offices and flood it with left-wing activists so that they could run the Democratic get-out-the-vote operation in blue areas of swing states. It was complicated. It was a conspiracy. Actually, even Time magazine admits it was a conspiracy, which they described as a cabal of powerful people in all these different um, establishment institutions. To con- yeah, they admit it was a conspiracy, but they don't admit that it was a conspiracy to rig an election. So it's quite different. And so I read this Time magazine story, the secret history of the shadow campaign that saved the 2020 election. It wasn't saving it from Donald Trump. It was saving it from absolute chaos. So Molly keeps conflating a conspiracy with something nefarious. Control the outcome of the election. So I think don't limit yourself to just fraud. It's much bigger, much, much more coordinated and widespread and much more effective uh, in, in controlling the outcome of the election. Molly, last question for you. Were you surprised that Brett Kavanaugh, you did wrote a great book. Okay. Molly also went on the uh, Newt Gingrich show talking about her new book, Rigged. And so people are aware and working on it. And Molly, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Speaker Gingrich. I'm curious, you're one of the few members of the media who was able to obtain multiple interviews with former President Trump. Can you tell us about some of the other sources you spoke to in developing this? Yeah, when I wrote Justice on Trial with my co-author, Carrie Severino, we interviewed more than 100 people to get the story of how that confirmation went down. And I knew I wanted to do a similar approach with the 2020 election, even as crazed and nationwide and complicated as it was. And so I did get to interview President Trump three times, and that was very helpful, but also just many people in the campaign, the Republican National Committee, and then quite a few people at the state level and local election officials, because so much of what happened occurred at the state and local level, and it was important for me to understand what they were dealing with. And so I found that insight from these people, whether they were really high level or whether they were you know, local election attorneys figuring stuff out in Philadelphia, the whole thing was helpful. You know, it's really interesting as I think back over the years. I think the last time Democrats actually accepted the legitimacy of losing in a presidential campaign was in 1988 when George H.W. Bush won by a huge margin. The fact is that in 2000, they smeared President George W. Bush. And- so I virtually never share anything from CBS on, on my show because they're very quick to to you know, try to take down your stream if you show any CBS content. Uh, pretty much the same with NBC and ABC. Uh, almost never have a problem with Fox. So maybe on one or two occasions, I, I've taken you know too much from Fox and, and they've, they've protested. So that's why I show so much content from Fox and almost never show anything from the other networks. I mean, Vice is particularly stringent in, in looking after the, the, their content and they will throw down a, a strike and block your stream if you, if you show anything from, from Vice. And uh, most of the other major networks pretty stringent, but Fox is pretty easygoing. Almost never have a problem with Fox. That's why I show so much uh, Fox stream. He kept saying that he was selected, not elected. When Bush won re-election in 2004, 
Many on the left claimed that voting machines in Ohio had been rigged to deliver fraudulent votes. And after the 2016 election, the political and media establishments claimed Russian collusion as to why Trump won, which I always thought was because nobody could actually walk in and tell Hillary to her face that she was a terrible candidate. Veronica Meadows, respecter, is back. Welcome back, sir. I know one streamer swears by the technique of making his appeals in broken English. Says it works on YouTube and Twitter. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to start streaming live on Odyssey. So there, there are a lot of uh, other places where you can live stream. So I'm ready to give up on YouTube whenever it's necessary. Now, one challenge is I've kind of imbibed and become habituated to YouTube's terms of service. So I kind of take them with me. So it will take me a while probably to get used to not being in the, in the shackles of YouTube. Why do you see this constant pressure on the left to not accept election outcomes? Well, this situation has been bad for a while. As you know, the Democrats haven't fully accepted election results for presidential elections they've lost. But the 2016 situation really deserves focus. That was one where they couldn't accept that they lost to the point that they spread this completely insane conspiracy theory that they hadn't lost, that Donald Trump had colluded with Russia to steal the election. And this You know who's great about YouTube's terms of service, who was great? Like J.F. Garapi, like Richard Spencer remarked, J.F. was the only person who could figure out YouTube's terms of service. Uh, J.F. almost never got a, a YouTube strike. And he was monetized. He started up a new channel. He knew how to play the YouTube game. Then when he left to do almost all his live streaming on Odyssey, then uh, YouTube finally demonetized his channel wasn't something that was just a fringe theory that a few people held to. This was embraced by the entire corporate media environment, the entire Democrat Party. Frankly, even some squishy Republicans were buying into this. They kept that drumbeat going for years. It was based on nothing, and it was very damaging to the Republic. And then these same individuals who did this for years gave each other awards for how they spread this conspiracy theory, then said that in 2020, an election unlike any one we've ever seen in this country, with hundreds of changes to laws and procedures, with COVID and with the media going from bias to outright propaganda, with tech companies meddling in the election in so many horrifying ways, then they said, you can't have any questions about the election. And it's that combination of how crazed and conspiratorial they were from 2016 through November 2020 combined with their refusal to allow any so i'm thinking more about veronica meadows point here i know one streamer who swears by the technique of making his youtube strike appeals in broken english that, that may work but everything you do has an effect on you so when you try to game the system that has an effect on you and sometimes it may be appropriate i'm not saying never game the system but definitely, it always has an effect on you. And I think, generally speaking, in, in a relatively free country like the United States of America, it's not a good idea to develop the habit of trying to game the system. So, it's trying to manipulate, all right? If, you, if you're going to try to manipulate YouTube, or you're going to try to manipulate your boss, or you're going to try to manipulate your rabbi or your priest, your minister, your friends. You're not going to just do it that once with, with that interaction. You'll, you'll take those manipulative techniques throughout your life, and people will have less trust for you. Now, there are times and circumstances where trying to manipulate is absolutely the right thing to do, but that is... That's a serious thing. It's not a good idea to get in the habit of trying to game other corporations or other people trying to manipulate other people. Yes, there is a time and there is a place where manipulation is the appropriate response. But uh, I don't think it is, generally speaking, a good idea. Discussion of very real shenanigans and problems that I think is so striking. 
Well, and their reaction to all this was to write what they call H.R. 1, which would actually make the whole election process more corrupt. It's striking to me that both the Caltech-MIT Voting Technology Project back in 2001 said that the greatest fraud problems may lie in absentee balloting. And in 2005, a bipartisan commission, ironically co-chaired by Jimmy Carter, found that absentee balloting was the largest source of potential fraud in American elections. And the reaction of the Democrats is to maximize the likelihood of millions and millions of people voting absentee. What do you ascribe to their underlying passion for trying to create the maximum opportunity for vote theft? Right. Up until about a year ago, everyone acknowledged that mail-in balloting was the largest source of fraud or just other election irregularities. That was true in the United States, where the New York Times and the Washington Post... No, they did acknowledge that. There were some people who said it had the potential to be, but Molly is sloppy and she just conflates the, the potential to be fraudulent with, oh, definitely fraudulent. Most used to say it. It's true in France, where they actually banned mail-in balloting because of so many problems with fraud. And... Then it became Democrats' strategy. And I think the strategy has a few different reasons behind it. One is that there really is a partisan divide in willingness or eagerness to vote by mail. I don't fully understand why this is, but it is very striking that Republicans are extremely hesitant to trust a vote by mail process, whereas Democrats tend to have confidence in it. And so if you privilege vote by mail and its insecurity over other forms of voting, you're really privileging the Democrat Party. And there is also the issue that it became strategy just because the chaos is actually the point. Mark Elias, who's someone that I talk a lot about in the book, is this Democrat attorney. He was at Perkins Coie, this very big Democrat firm that was the pass-through for the Russia hoax. They're the ones who hired. Yeah, so Mark Elias has been a very effective Democratic attorney working on voting regulations. So maybe the Republicans should try to learn from his example. What makes him so effective? How can Republicans be equally effective? The people who created the Russia hoax, they took Hillary Clinton's money, Democratic National Committee money, and they invented this false and damaging smear that did so much damage to the country. Mark Elias is also the guy who ran the strategy to wildly expand mail-in balloting at the same time that scrutiny of mail-in ballots was eliminated or seriously decreased. And I think... And uh, Art Bell notes, I've done very few stroll streets. Yeah, that's because I, I, I think it's kind of antisocial. I, I, I don't think people appreciate it when you walk down the street and, and you're live streaming. So it makes me feel uncomfortable because I, I notice that other people don't appreciate it. So yeah, I'm highly selective and quite limited in doing stroll streaming anymore. I've become morally sensitized, right? If you're doing something that makes other people uncomfortable, you are harming them, right? If, if I needlessly offend people, I am harming them, right? If, if my going down the street, stroll streaming, and I am making people uncomfortable, I am doing harm to the people around me. That's not something, that's not a habit that I want to slip into. It is because that's the point. They want to create chaos. They want to have uncertainty. They want to have a much larger sphere of litigation where they can battle things out. Elias has a history of winning races that he lost, by which I mean, if you remember the Al Franken Senate election where he lost that race, but Mark Elias came in and was able to litigate his way into a victory. That was a significant victory because it gave Democrats the supermajority they needed to pass Obamacare. And so it's a feature for them. The chaos, the confusion, the disruption, the illegality is a benefit. That's what they're going for. It's fascinating. I mean, Elias himself is one of the central figures in the corruption of the American system. His fingerprints are almost everywhere. They were certainly in Georgia. He apparently is sort of the chief lawyer for creating corrupt elections, and Democrats across the country recognize his importance. And I think that's his focus. It's absolutely his focus. He has a long history of doing it. He's been involved on a lot of races. He has no qualms about taking completely contradictory positions. For instance, when he was trying to steal Claudia Tenney's victory in a New York congressional race in 2020, he was claiming that Dominion... Yeah, what's more important, principles or interests, all right? If you put your interests or your principle is the, the well-being of the Democratic Party, then you will use contrary arguments depending on, on circumstance. 
Sounds like Mark Elias just primarily wants to be effective for his side. It's probably something worth emulating. Now, there are occasions, I believe, where principles are more important than interests. Generally speaking, interests are more important than principles. In voting systems were hackable and corrupt, but then he'll mock people who say that on the other side of things because his goal is simply winning for Democrats. If he's on the upside of a close recount, he will denounce recount efforts. If he's on the downside of a recount, he'll be very tenacious in his fight to enable a recount. But he has this whole army of help too. It's kind of easy to win when you have a lot of money and power behind you. And because he's been general counsel for so many prominent Democrats and so many Democratic organizations, and he it isn't that easy to win when you have a lot of money and power behind you. I mean, there were Senate elections where Democrats spent over $100 million and still lost. Right? You can spend $100 million on a Senate election and still lose. No. I mean, this is kind of loser talk. Just, oh, Mark Elias just has a lot of money behind it. No, he's very effective. Why not learn from how he gets to be so effective rather than trying to diminish it by claiming, oh, he just has a lot of money behind it. He has all of these left-wing groups that are willing to, you know, he'll file the lawsuit, but he'll just take one of their names off the shelf and get them to pretend that they're the ones who are actually fighting to decrease election security. And Republicans really have not done that. Now, partly they haven't done that for reasons of their own failure, but partly, I also get into this in the book, they've had some legal challenges that made it impossible. And uh, haven't been very effective. So Laura Loomer did not win, right? She did not win the Republican nomination. She fell about five percentage points short for them to do election day operations and oversight for nearly 40 years. And I know you probably are aware of this, but I had no idea that they were under this consent decree arising from a conflict in the early 1980s in New Jersey, where they weren't allowed to do any election day oversight until 2018. They kept on having this continued because there was this very lefty judge who kept keeping them under this consent decree. And he even took senior status. Where So, for example, let's say your car insurance would be half the price if you told your car insurance company that your your vehicle resided, say, your, your parents' home in a different zip code. Now, obviously, this isn't the moral ideal. Right? Morally, ideally, you would not do that. If you were in sufficiently desperate circumstances, it's not the most heinous thing to do in the world. So, yeah, I'm not a big fan of getting into the habit of gaming the system. I recognize for some people on some occasions it is, it is the best choice. He retain some of his old cases just so he could keep it going. And it's just insane. Republicans were fighting with both hands tied behind their back. They had no ability to do litigation until 2018. They almost had it continued even at that point because Sean Spicer literally was on the wrong floor of Trump Tower one day and they almost extended the consent decree even longer. So there just wasn't that muscle memory with Republicans. There's not the money that Elias and his team of Democrat attorneys have. And also there was a lack of creativity and innovation and you know strategy behind it too. Yeah, I mean, I'm very struck that the Democratic lawyers tend to be tougher and more ruthless and more experienced and candidly just smarter than the Republican lawyers. It's kind of odd. They're willing to do things that Republicans aren't. That might be too. Well, also, law is a profession that is dominated by the left. So lawyers lawyers are overwhelmingly on the left. That's why it's a lot easier to to recruit highly effective lawyers. And I talked with some left. of them about why they agreed. So Republican lawyers who are simply out of their league. They're not ready to deal with somebody of his experience and his power. And I talked with some of them about why they agreed. So what happened there is Mark Elias came in and sued the Secretary of State. It's a common strategy Elias and other Democrats use. All election law changes are supposed to happen through the state legislature, but sometimes you don't have a friendly state legislature who will be willing to go along with your plot. And so he would sue a state official and get them to settle. Now, usually he was doing that against Democrat state officials. In Georgia, he did it with a Republican state official and the Republican agreed to it. And that was one of many things where Georgia was a frustrating mess compared to other states. And partly though, it wasn't just Raffensperger who agreed to that. There were other Republicans who counseled him to agree to it. Their thinking was, and I think this really speaks to what you're saying, if we agree to this, then judges will go easy on us in later battles. 
I mean, this is not an approach that Democrat attorneys take. They go for the jugular every single time and then they win, you know, however many they win. Republicans sort of take this defensive posture like there's something wrong with election security when in fact it actually is very important for the survival of the republic. They apologize for it, or at least they did in Georgia. I talked with Florida officials and they said that when people came after them to weaken their election integrity and the claim that election integrity is racist, they told them all to buzz off. But in Georgia, for some reason, it worked and they all kind of cowered and decided to agree to a weakening of mail-in balloting verification. I don't think they realized at the time a uh, question in the chat, uh, Nosejob's comment with Jewish women, with certain Jewish women, all right? So highly common with certain Jewish women, times, times and places, all right? Different groups, different times, different places, you'll find different tendencies. But yeah, it was a long-running joke. It became so prevalent, say, in, in the Northeast among middle class, upper middle class uh, Jewish women to have a nose job. How many ballots would come out that way. But then they did other stuff they weren't even being asked to do, like mailing out to every single address on the list an application for mailing. And what's my take on the drama surrounding Andrew Tate? I I've, I find him disturbing. I mean, I'm sh sure there are things that he says that, that I agree with, but he's not someone that I'd want in my home. It's not someone I'd want, you know, closely integrated into my life. And I don't want him, say, at my home for a dinner party. I, I can understand why big tech would not want to host him. And just as when big tech pretty much collectively decided to ban Alex Jones, and I was ambivalent about that, I wasn't appalled. I, I debated Frame Game Radio about it. He thought it was a horrible thing. I, I didn't really have much of a problem with big tech uh, banning Andrew Tate. I, I find him disturbing. I, I, I just want to keep him very much at arm's length while also recognizing that there's a certain type of charisma, a certain type of charm, and you know, sometimes has a certain amount of wisdom to share. But there's this Hebrew saying where, where you speak to the bee and you say, look, I don't want your honey and I don't want your sting. So I don't want the honey that Andrew Tate may have to dispense and I don't want the sting. I, I would not want to be associated with him. I wouldn't want him you know, integrated into my life. I don't have a problem with uh, big tech deciding they don't want him on their platform. If, if I don't want someone at my dinner party, I can understand why, why, why big tech would regard being on their platforms as a privilege and they just don't want someone like that. Ballot. They didn't need to do that. Or if they did it, they could have combined it with some kind of security measure, like the applications could have come back if the address was undeliverable. You know, they were sending them out first class mail. It should have been something they could have done. Just a lot of really weird and frankly stupid <laughs> decisions made by the Georgia Secretary of State's office. And I get into it in great detail in the book, but it was frustrating because I think they should have known better. Well, and uh, how about a dinner with Milo? Milo, again, is not something I want to be associated with. He's just done so many icky things, yucky things, immoral, unethical things, things to people. I would not want him in my life. Ugh. What I'm struck with is the Georgia series of agreements were like amateur city. I mean, you couldn't quite figure out why they would agree to set up to rig a game. I tell people, I don't believe that the election was stolen on election day. I think the whole election was rigged and the rigging was like a year long process. I mean, that's where your book is perfect. And is actually what Trump should pick up on. I mean, you know, instead of talking about stealing the election on election day, he really ought to be talking about this was the most rigged election in American history. And I think your book really helps make that case. And it's not just what we're talking about with Elias and weakening protections. It's so much more. And it was all coordinated. I talk in the book about how Mark Zuckerberg, one of the world's wealthiest and most powerful men, spent $419 million to do a private takeover of government election offices. This is another issue where Georgia plays a huge role because Georgia got more funding than any other state you know, relative to its population. It gets $45 million in what are called Zuckerberg bucks or Zuck bucks. And what he did is he funded these left-wing organizations, and then they in turn funded predominantly Democrat counties and swing states. They brought in an army of people to do voter registration 
registration, targeted voter registration in Democrat heavy areas, ballot design, ballot translation, ballot counting, ballot harvesting, ballot everything. And they went into a system that is supposed to be scrupulously nonpartisan. And you, again, compare because it's an easy example. You compare Florida, which got a little bit of Zuckerberg funding, but not nearly as much as Georgia. That state goes two points to the right for Republicans. Trump won by one. He wins by three in 2020. Georgia goes from what? Five points for Trump to one point for Biden. It's a There's a lot of good stuff in this Molly Hemingway book. She has done the best job making the case that the 2020 elections were rigged. I don't believe they were rigged, but she has a lot of good information on how you know Democrats place themselves in a much better position to win than did the Republicans. Massive change. It doesn't make any sense unless you understand that they were embedding into the system, that they were artificially driving up votes in blue areas and not red areas, and that this was a very partisan takeover of government election offices. And I just want to say again, unlike every other state where you see this, it was the Republican Secretary of State's office that thought it would be a great idea to bring these people in to run Democrat get-out-the-vote operations from inside the system. It's just mind-boggling. Having been active in campaigns for a very, very long time, I don't understand how somebody can spend over $400 million to affect an election, and it's not a violation of campaign law. So there were some challenges before the election where people suspected something was wrong, but judges tended to say, well, they're funding both Democrat and Republican counties. And that was true. Like in Pennsylvania, they funded Republican counties to the tune of like $5,000, literally $5,000. Philadelphia? $10 million. So technically bipartisan, but not in any meaningful sense, even when you adjust for population. They were strategic in how they did it, but it was hard to detect because a lot of this information only became clear after the election. And now researchers are looking into what the effect of this partisan funding was, and they're finding a very partisan effect. So there was this team of researchers in Texas. They were really interested because they are Texas-based, so they were interested in how it affected Texas. They did Bayesian analysis. These economists did a very highly sensitive way of analyzing the data to determine what the effect of this funding was and determined that it yielded 200,000 more votes for Biden than if it hadn't happened. And you think, well, Texas safely for Trump and Republicans. Republicans had a great year in Texas. So what's the big deal? Well, you might remember in 2018, Ted Cruz won by only just over 200,000 votes, a statewide race. 200,000 votes is massive. And all it takes in Georgia is 11,000 votes. And they spent $45 million in Georgia. Do you think it was enough to have the election go the opposite way? It's not even in question. It's such a big effect that this happened. Well, and frankly, I'm worried very much about the governor's race in Virginia for the same reason. Fairfax County has already announced that they're going to report late, which means, of course, they'll let the rest of the state run up Youngkin's majority, and then they'll try to find enough extra votes to offset it, even if those votes involve people who aren't real. I think Virginia has been a test case for Democrats in many ways. They have this early off-year election. And so what happened four years ago was they took over the state legislature through very targeted funding and voter efforts. And sometimes they're doing it in violation of the law. There are all sorts of lawsuits flying about right now. Of course, judges don't like to get involved in election disputes prior to elections. And then they also don't like to get involved after elections. And it's creating a complete mess because, again, the Democrat strategy is chaos and confusion. And you read some of the Supreme Court opinions or, you know, when they would decide not to hear an opinion, sometimes the judges would offer some thoughts on that. And I think it was Thomas who said that he was very opposed to not hearing a case. Their grounds were that it was moot because it wouldn't affect the outcome of the election in this particular case. And he said, that's why we should hear it. We should, of course, clarify these issues when it's not going to have a profound effect one way or the other, because there are elections coming up where we need to clarify, is it legal to do this or not legal to do that? And you have counties in states across the country where you see a disparate reaction to the law. So again, in Pennsylvania, they say you're not supposed to check ballots before election day. But the Trump campaign figures out that they are checking ballots before election day in some Democrat counties, by which I mean, they are looking at the outer envelope to see if everything's filled out correctly and taking it back to voters if it's not. Republican-led counties viewed that as illegal. Democrat counties were able to do it. Well, that disenfranchises the voters in the Republican-led counties. You know, so it's all these problems where you need to clarify. Right. So if you're interested in rigged how the media, big tech and the Democrats seized our elections, then the best book making this case is by Ms. Hemingway. Right. You're probably asking, what does uh, Matt Chrisman have to say about uh, better to have some sort of symbolic power 
and uh, and just put more money into that, you know? And you can say, oh, they might try to do something good, but, like, it's essentially the same artificial constraints on storytelling that happen with the fucking superhero movies. Like, you are constrained. You aren't able to tell something that maybe would be more authentic to the artist, whoever that might be. They're kind of chained by the existing intellectual property. Literal intellectual property. Like, that's, that's how uh, it's organized. I mean, like, I think Better Call Saul, a lot of people love it, but for me, that is the number one example of what I'm talking about. Better Call Saul feels like, it, to me, it could have been a really uh, interesting show if the original elements of it hadn't been wedded to Breaking Bad. I mean, I really did not... What really turned me off that show was when we found out, oh, how, how Hector got uh, his... Got in a wheelchair. Yeah, that that was something that was an uh, an unanswered question of, of like significance. Like that's not the kind of set dressing that you just take for granted in any story you hear. It only gains mythic relevance afterwards when you're trying to build on this fucking this carcass, this artistic corpse that you're just trying to pick over and reskin. So uh, no, thank you to uh, the whole trend of things that are just iterations of existing structures. Wait, wait, Jimmy, Jimmy, what? It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Bye-bye.